in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. Well, we get a chance to carry on in our conversation about uh, the fruit that the Spirit brings in our lives. And uh, we've talked about uh, love like Jesus loves. We've talked about joy in trials. And today we're going to be talking about peace in the midst And we want to talk about this in these ways because as a congregation of believers, we really value the Word of God. We also value one another. We also value serving each other. And we have a significant understanding of the fact that we can't develop any of this on our own. We cannot muster up enough love or enough joy or enough peace or any of the other elements of fruit that the Holy Spirit gives because it's his gift to us. It's what he gives that enables us to exhibit those kind of qualities. So I'd like you to turn with me in Mark chapter four, please. So I just found out my phone can also double as a paperweight. It's really helpful. Mark chapter four. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. I was like, well, it's now it's sliding. Okay, here we go. There we go. Nice. Um, so Mark chapter four, we're going to get into um, as we look at this concept of Jesus bringing peace and the Holy Spirit's gift being peace. Mark is writing his gospel to the people in Rome, the Christians in Rome, who were facing really significant persecution under Emperor Nero. And in this little section here, Jesus is really busy telling a lot of parables and making a lot of explanations to those, especially his disciples who were trying to figure out what he was saying. And he was doing miracles because he wanted to show who he really was. The people at that point in time didn't quite understand who Jesus was. They'd seen some of the things he was saying and doing, but they weren't putting all the pieces together. So he was sharing in parables the truths of God's word, but he was also doing miracles. He wanted his followers, those that had eyes to see who he really was, to be assured of his presence and his patience and power in the midst of their pain. I want you to notice while we read together, I want you to notice um, the details and the fear that was exhibited by the disciples. The details and the fear point to the fact that we can trust this as actually historical. Because if this was just a myth, if this was just a grandiose story that that Mark wrote to make make Jesus look bigger, these details wouldn't be in there because these details don't look good on the disciples. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and the, the, the details and the reality makes a difference. So we actually probably think that, that this was an account that Mark heard from an eyewitness, probably Peter, and he translated it down, wrote it down so that we could have it today. First of all, let's look at the fact that Jesus gives peace in the midst of storms. Jesus gives peace in the midst of storms. Verses 35 to 36 says this, That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he he was in the boat. And there were also other boats with him. Here we see Jesus 
and he is giving a new direction of let's go from here east side to the west side let's let's make that trek from galilee the jewish section the jewish area to the 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 gerasenes area the area where gentiles live non-jewish people live from from west to east and um and he said the other side but when the disciples would have heard that they would have been thinking oh the wrong side, like, like there was definitely a, a stigma attached to going to that side of the lake. And there probably would have been a bit of fear, a bit of questioning, like why, what, what purpose could you have, Jesus? But they didn't say anything, they just did what he said. So they're on the Sea of Galilee. Some important things to know is that it's the largest freshwater lake in Israel. It's 13 miles um, tall, if we call it that way, from north to south, and it's seven and a half or eight miles wide from west to east. So it's not a huge lake, but it's uh, a big lake when you're in the middle of it. It's about uh, a third the size of Lake Mille Lacs, just to get a kind of a picture of what we're talking about. Average 80-foot depth, average. So it can go a little deeper, like 120 to 40 deep, and then there is obviously some shallow spots too, but average is 80 feet. And here's a fun fact. It's 686 feet below sea level, which is the lowest freshwater lake on the face of the earth. So there's some dynamics there that, that create uh, the, the volatility of this storm. Uh, the boat, and there was actually one discovered in 1985 that, um, that mimics the descriptions that we see in the Bible. And so it's pretty cool to see the size and the and the depth and length of it. 27 feet long would be a classic boat that they would have been in, seven and a half feet wide with uh, cedar planks and able to be rowed and sailed in. And clearly that size of a boat was designed for about 15 people. It would have had a raised part on the back end, which will come into uh, the details clearly as we keep reading. Um, and that's where the kind of, I don't know, captain, if you want to call it that, um, pilot, main fisherman would have been uh, kind of directing the, the rowers or directing the people moving the sails. And so um, this boat clearly was big enough to hold the 12 disciples plus Jesus, which if I'm doing my math right, that's 13, and it's a 15-passenger boat, so we're good there. And, uh, and here we look at verses 37 to 38, follow along with me, because we see Jesus asleep in the storm says this, a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you even care if we drown? So let's think about this for a minute. Why in the world would Jesus be sleeping? Is he faking it? I mean, like seriously, is he trying to make a point? Or is it as simple as he was tired? I think we can see evidence by the details of the whole chapter that Jesus was tired. Look at verses 1 and 2. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Jesus began to teach by the lake. This is the beginning of the day, this same day. The crowd had gathered around him, and it was so large 
gathering people. It was so large that he got into a boat and he sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. Now this was a um, acoustic device as well. A lot of times you would gain, um, I mean, you've, you've heard your voice carry over the water before. You've heard other people if you've ever been to a lake. This is exactly what's going on. And Jesus would have been aware that that's a really effective way to, to teach people, a lot of people. But the point is, they'd come early and there were a lot of them. Look at verses, verse 10. When he was alone, he wasn't really alone. It says, when he was alone, meaning away from the crowds, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. So Jesus was kind of like constantly on. Even when he was alone, he wasn't really alone because he had a, at least 12, but it says others were there too. So we have no idea how many people were saying, Jesus, what did you mean by this? Jesus, can you explain this? He was on nonstop teaching. Uh, look at verses 33 to 34. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. So the cool thing is, Jesus is God and he's totally aware of his audience. He is watching them, their eyeballs going, okay, I, I'm going to just say right up to the point where they can get it and I'm not going to go further because I can see it. I can see that they don't get me yet. He didn't say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his disciples, again, not alone, he explained everything. It says in our passage, Jesus, verse 36, they took Jesus along just as, as he was. Meaning, it was the very same day, just as he had been teaching and preaching and explaining and listening and answering questions, they took him along as he was. What was he like? Tired. <laughs> So I've got a question for you. Raise your hand. Who sleeps in a car when you're on a road trip? Raise your hand if you fall asleep easily in a car on a road trip. Yeah, so you get it. You get it. Jesus was like that. As soon as he had a chance for some downtime, the disciples are dealing with the water, the boat, the oars, or the sails. We don't know which they were using that day. And he went and found the one cushion on the boat, because there would have been one that was pretty common. The one cushion on the boat, used it as a pillow, and he was out. So we don't have to stretch this any further to say Jesus was tired. And there's reality there. Again, the details matter. And uh, I think that's really simple and, and significant. Let's look at this squall. I think the word squall underplays the storm. Because when we think of a squall, we're like, okay, maybe I'll need a raincoat or whatever. But in this case, on the Sea of Galilee, it says a, a furious squall kicked up. That's what Mark says. Matthew says the same thing. Um, Luke, in his account, says a raging storm or a windstorm. Picture straight line winds, picture hurricane, picture out of nowhere, we are in big trouble. Again, the Sea of Galilee, it's really low, 686 feet below sea level, and it had 2,000 foot hills on the east side of it. It's a shallow lake relatively, and cold winds would shoot the gap coming through there, mixed with the warm lake air, and create these furious out of nowhere storms really dangerous weather patterns. Sometimes 10-foot waves could be developed in a matter of minutes. 
And we think, well, 10 feet, how, how, how high is that? Okay, well, the trees we're under, they're probably cut at about eight feet. So go two more feet up there. That's a wave that's hitting your little boat. And if the boat is full with 13 people, it's pretty low in the water already. And it doesn't take a lot for the little lapping waves to create 10 foot waves and come right on over. It is still amazing how tired Jesus was, but if he was in a raised platform, probably the sound just sounded soothing. He was tired. He was asleep. He wasn't faking it. So look at verses 38 and 39. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion, and the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you even care if we drown? And he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Peace, be still. Your version might say, Quiet, be still. Or it might say, Hush, be still. It's all correct. Peace, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Like from 10-foot raging storm waters to whoosh. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what the disciples thought? They were legitimately scared to death. They were feeling like they were in a hopeless situation. They were helpless. And these guys are professional fishermen. These people have been on the water for their whole life. They've seen it all. They know when they're in danger. And they were scared to death. They knew boating. They knew how to handle a boat in weather. They thought they were going to drown. They weren't just, you know, hyperbole for the story's sake. They thought they were going to die. The, the black and white words, teacher, don't you care if we drown? We can read that like, teacher, don't you care if we drown? And it doesn't do it justice. You got to almost scream it, which I won't do because people in the playground might wonder what's going on here. But they were panicked. We got to see that. That detail is really important. And then Jesus does the miracle. He didn't create the storm so that he could do a miracle. He just utilized the storm and taught them that they could trust him with his words and his actions. He's God. He wants them to see. He's revealing this to them. They don't quite get it yet. They don't see that he is God yet until these kind of things keep happening around them. He's God and he gives peace in the midst of their panic. And everything was calm. Jesus is, re is revealing that he is God because one of the things in the scriptures throughout the Bible we see is that God controls nature. When God's involved, he's in full control even of nature. Exodus 14, the, uh, the parting of the Red Sea. That is one of the premier, most referenced um, miracles of God in the Old Testament that carries on in the New Testament as well. It was like a faith builder. Anybody who was there was totally convinced that God had done that. Moses just walked through in front of him. They knew Moses didn't do it. They knew God did it. He had all the credit, all the glory. And then the rest of the time that it's referenced throughout the Bible, it's always pointed back, see, this is what God can do. This is what God, he controls nature. This is what Jesus is doing here. We see in Psalm 89, I want to just read this, just listen, don't turn there. Psalm 89, 8 and 9, listen to this. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty, 
You, Lord, are mighty and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. This can be even seen as a messianic reference. But we know for sure that it's a reference specifically to the Lord Almighty who controls even waves and stills and calms the sea. The disciples are hopeless, but Jesus gives peace in the midst of panic. Now look at verses 40 to 41. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They have real questions here that require reflection. In fact, their question goes unanswered. They say, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And it doesn't get an answer because it's meant for us to reflect on. Jesus, when they're asking, when he's asking the questions, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? He's not mad at them. He's not scolding them. He's not saying, what is wrong with you? Don't you see who I am yet? He's asking them to teach them, to make them consider and to think about it. He wanted them to figure out who they were putting their trust in and what they were putting their trust in. And clearly, as we can imagine, because it's totally normal, the disciples were putting their trust in two things. They were trusting themselves and they were trusting their equipment. They're trusting themselves in that they were professional fishermen. They knew what was going on. They knew their skills. They had a lot of experience and they had a lot of ability at handling these situations. So they were trusting themselves and that was coming up short. And then they were also trusting their equipment. This boat, top of the line, pretty big on the water, has two ways that we can move. We can move with oars, super cool, and sails, how convenient. And probably it was like state of the art. So they had great equipment as well. That's what they were trusting in. And both themselves and their equipment were coming up short. So their reaction, they're terrified, Mark says. Luke says they were filled with two things, fear and amazement. So we get out of this description, terrified fear and amazement, we get this concept that they have an awe of God. They are putting two and two together thinking, oh, he's doing what only God can do. And they're putting it together saying, he must be God. Awe, fear, amazement, reverence that overtakes them. You and I have experienced that as well. Sometimes when the Lord has done something amazing for us and we know for sure and we're down on our face kind of thing. But humanly walking around, sometimes we've experienced awe when we've seen a sight that we in a manner of moments realize, oh, that is so beautiful, so vast, so amazing, only God could have done that. Maybe it's the birth of a child. Maybe it's seeing a mountain or a sunset. That awe, that reverence that overtakes us is what they're experiencing here. In the midst of the storm, these disciples had no peace because they were still learning who Jesus really was. But unlike the disciples, we have a different benefit. We have the benefit of having the full picture of who Jesus is. 
Like if I were to ask you, was Jesus the Messiah? You'd have the right answer if you said yes. <laughs> so we have the benefit of knowing he's the Messiah. He's God in human form. He's the son of God. He's the savior of the world. And yet you and I need the same peace that they needed. I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes peace eludes us. Jesus gives peace in the midst of your storms too, and mine as well. This is not a spiritualized stretch from this story. Like sometimes we read stories from the Bible and we say, so therefore this applies completely to me. <laughs> That's not what we're doing here. We're seeing an amazing um, true to life story, once upon a time, a very real time story and we can apply it to us because there is this concept of the Holy Spirit's fruit. One of the manifestations of that is peace that is given that cannot be explained. Peace here in our story is an immediate command by Jesus. It's a command. He confronted the wind and the waves. It's a command by Jesus backed by his authority as God to be silent, to be hushed, be calm, be quiet, peace. And that's exactly how the storm reacted that day on the Sea of Galilee. Peace, be still. And the wind died down and it was completely calm. That moment is a picture of what is promised to us. The command in our story has a synonym that we see as peace. It's the same word, same meanings, meaning rest, quietness, absence of stress, even absence of conflict between people, peace. And this is the word that we find in Galatians 5.20 as one of the listed Holy Spirit fruit. Shalom in the Old Testament, which means wholeness, well-being. Everything is good and beautiful. What a great word, a rich word, a deep word, a multifaceted word. It's like Psalm 46.10, which says, Cease striving and know that I am God. I drove by a 94 this week. And uh, coming from the west, coming back towards St. Paul, there's a little section, I can't be really accurate as to where it is, but it's like right after Top Golf, and you take that little jog, jog south before it goes east again. And there's this car up on a pedestal. And I, it kills me that I don't know what that car is. I gotta figure that out, but it's got little bug eyes and it's a little sports car. It's been up there for years. I think it's red and it's got Psalm 46.10. And I laugh every time I see it because I look for it. And uh, hopefully you'll see it when you drive by too. Psalm 46.10, cease striving and know that I'm God. And I'm not sure if, there, if that's a car dealership that's saying cease driving and come on in here. I'm not sure if that's what they're trying to do or if they're trying to encourage me as I drive by and remind me, oh yeah, I can cease striving. This gift of peace is just that. We cannot figure it out ourselves. We cannot make ourselves be at peace. 
It's something that in the midst of our storms, we have to receive it. But it's a promise by the Holy Spirit. And yet it's still a valid question to ask. If peace is fruit of the Holy Spirit, then where is it when I need it? That's a valid question, isn't it? I mean, yeah, we can talk about it all day long, but where is it when I need it? Even though we've trusted Jesus for salvation, we've been born again, we've been saved, we know who he claims to be. We have the full Bible to reveal the truth to us over and over again, but we still have trials. We still have disappointments. We still have anxious thoughts and anxiety that overtakes us. We still have changes in our lives that are really uncomfortable, transitions. We still have non-answers. Lord, when are you going to do something here? Why is this carry on continuously? We still have to go places that trigger us. We still have to be with people that don't like us. If this is a gift of the Holy Spirit, then where is it when I need it? Turn with me to John 14, please. John 14, starting at verse 25. I would say it this way, as we read this passage, this is a great reminder that Jesus gives peace in the midst of whatever it is you would fill in the blank with, in the midst of being with that person or in the midst of having to go to that place or in the midst of the anxiety that, that rises in you and takes over, in the, midst, in the midst of the changes that happen in your life, in the midst of the unknown, Jesus gives peace in the midst. Look at verses 25 through 27. All this I've spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. This peace that Jesus gives, it's a spiritual response to the Holy Spirit in every Christian's life. Like, we're all included in what the Holy Spirit gives. It's part of what's been promised. It's available to all. And if Jesus says he gives us this peace, then it's a gift. Like, he didn't say, work for this peace and then you'll experience it. Or you got to be a certain level before you discover this peace. He says, no, this peace I give to you. And that's the promise that's consistent with the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in every one of us. If it's a gift, then I have one response to experience it, and that is to receive it. It's like a, a submissive response. If I had a really fancy pen and I decided I wanted to gift it to Titus, because I'm so proud of him and just want to commemorate all that he's accomplished. So I'd walk over and I'd hand him this pen, and if it's a truly a gift, it'd be so inappropriate for him to say, how much for that? It would be totally inappropriate for him to say, what do I need to do to get that, to buy that, to, to be good enough for that pen? That would eliminate the fact that it was a gift. What he would have to do in order to experience this gift would be to simply receive it. 
simple. We give gifts and receive gifts all the time. But the thing that sets a gift apart from a purchase is that it's given to us and we get to take it, receive it. That's the promise of peace. We can't earn it. We can't figure it out. We can't perform for it. It's a gift. Jesus goes on, he says, this is a different kind of peace than you're, than you're going to experience in this world. It's supernatural. It's not based on like perfect conditions. In fact, as a gift, when we receive and experience this peace from the Holy Spirit, it comes out of nowhere when it shouldn't be there. It's something that the Lord gives in the midst of our trouble, cries, trauma, need, changes, whatever it is. Philippians 4, Paul describes it as a peace that goes beyond human understanding. It doesn't make sense. When we experience this kind of peace, sometimes you look around and say, where is this coming from? I shouldn't be at peace right now. I should be freaked out, terrified, scared to death. That's the gift that Jesus gives. And this peace offsets my natural reactions to things because it's peace in the midst of, not because of. So as we wrap up this concept, how can you and I experience this kind of peace more? This is the part where I want to be sure not to give you or me a pat answer some sort of spiritualized platitude that doesn't really work in the real world. Rather, if this peace is fruit of the Holy Spirit, then it's already available and I need to posture myself to discover it, but not earn it and not work for it. I get to grow in my trust of who Jesus is. This is like discipleship. This is lifelong. This is not going to be experienced by the time you have hit 18 or 52 or retirement. This is lifelong growth. I need to keep growing in my understanding of who Jesus is so that I can trust him. I have God's word to help me with that. I need to read it. <laughs> I need to do it. I need to apply it to my life in an ongoing way, not just, you know, because I was in a, a Bible study. I need to let the Word of God be my spiritual food. I need to experience joy in the middle of trials, like Kirsten talked about last week. It's like a choice that I need to make, and we've all been there. I was, when I was little, I was a powder. I used to pout. It was never very effective. My, I... My mom and dad would see it coming and be like, okay, I'm going to really show them, so I'm going to pout about it. And they'd ignore me, and it just drove me crazy. There's, I, I got to admit this, there's still a little bit of that intention or that, that tendency in me that I'd like to just, if things don't go my way, I'd like to just pout and hope that that changes things, but it never does. I'm learning, and I know you are too, to choose joy in the midst of things that are not filled with joy. To choose the joy that's available, again, by the, the response and the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the midst of trials. And then seeing God at work. That's how I grow too. Oh, 
That's what God just did. Thank you so much, Lord, for taking care of that. Acknowledging, seeing, thanking, and responding. I need to grow in my trust of who he is. Secondly, I need to ask for peace when I'm anxious. Let anxiety be a gauge for you, a gauge for when you need to cry out and say, Lord, I need peace right here. You promise it. I'm claiming it. I want to experience it. Please give it. You can ask. He's responsive. He hears you. He sees you. When you're hurting, when you're self-reliant, when you're afraid, cry out for peace and grow in that as a follower of Jesus. And finally, and this is maybe the hardest thing in life, and that is to actively wait on God when things aren't going the way you hope they go. Like actively choose to just wait. If you don't feel peace, wait. I hate that part. I want things done now. But that's what we're instructed to do. These are not pat answers. This is not an easy way to get more peace. This sounds like surrendering, growing, waiting, trusting in Jesus, applying God's word, and letting him change me and gift me with this gift of peace when I need it in the midst of whatever I'm dealing with. And that peace surpasses human understanding. What a promise. What a gift. As we close our time together, be reminded of Jesus' words to you to encourage you and remind you of truth. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Thank you, Jesus, for all you are and how we can know you and how you pursue us. Thank you for this time together as family. And I pray that you would bless us this week to experience peace when it goes beyond human understanding, to cry out for it, to wait for it, to seek it, and to experience it because it's part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in us. Thanks for the promise. Thanks for the reality. Thanks for this time together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com. Paul.com.